Welcome to episode four of the Heart Podcast. In today's episode, we focus on considerations for preparing educational professionals who understand the fundamentals of anti-racist education and teaching, as well as understand the importance of caring for students' souls and making education a liberatory praxis. Joining us for this conversation today is Dr. Grace Player from the NIA School of Education at the University of Connecticut, Dr. Michael Funk from New York University, and Dr. Bridget Turner-Kelly from the University of Maryland College Park. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, and Nipmuc peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. Our guests in today's episode bring a wealth of experience and passion to their field as researchers and educators. Dr. Grace Player, Dr. Michael Funk, and Dr. Bridget Kelly will be taking us on a virtual field trip to their classroom to experience how they put anti-racist teaching into practice by incorporating an intersectional lens. Thank you, Omar, for those great introductions. We are so excited to be in conversation with the three of you today. Given your scholarship and focus on social justice education and your work in preparing the next generation of educational professionals, we are eager to learn from you and with you today about what it looks like to be in your classroom. To get us started, Bridget, what are your thoughts on what anti-racist teaching means to you? For me, it means decolonizing um, the curriculum. And by that, I mean kind of centering people of color as experts in the field and amplifying research they've done and inviting them into the class to tell their stories. Um, It means liberation and resistance. So the curriculum that I usually design is liberating because it frees students to be themselves and um, to be myself. It frees me (laughs) to do that about um, some misconceptions that we may have of who we are. Like we're not just marginalized or privileged people in our individual acts of oppression or social justice, but instead a complex mix of intersecting racial and ethnic identities with power um, within our sphere to influence and challenge inequities. And the curriculum liberates students and myself from dominant racial paradigms about what knowledge is, how it's socially constructed, and hopefully provides an avenue for change. Yeah, I don't, I I was very much vibing with a lot of what what Bridget was saying. Um, You know, I think um, as a literacy person, you know, I'm always thinking about what it means to create knowledge, uh, what knowledge is, how how we construct <laughs> all of those concepts of what what it means to be a knowledge maker, a knowledge producer, a knowledge consumer. Um, so I think when I think about my own curriculum and my own anti-racist teaching, that's at the center, right? Like it's always about like how are we re- reframing knowledge and thinking about like centering the voices, the ways of knowing the stories, the histories, the theories that are born out of the experiences of people of color. Um, You know, uh, not to like self-promote, but I'm gonna (laughs) self-promote. And an article that I uh, recently recently wrote with a couple of colleagues, uh, Dr. Justin Coles at Fordham and uh, Dr. Monica Gonzalez-Ibarra at uh, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, we kind of wrote this love letter um, to our students, um, students of color. And, you know, we came up with these like kind of four major tenets of of what we do. Um, One is existing beyond the entanglements of whiteness. Two, centering POC language, literacies and humanity. Three, creating spaces of collectivity. Four, having like an ethos of grounded optimism. Oh, I guess there was five, sorry. And five, challenging and re, uh, reimagining educational spaces. And I think those are all kind of really what I'm trying to do as I do anti-racist teaching um, for and with my students of colors, uh, color in particular. Grace, I gotta ask you, how did your students respond? I mean, is that a letter you ever share with your students? Like, is um, that a publication? It is something that I'm, I haven't, brought to my students yet. <laughs> um, it is one of my assignments for my class, uh, my critical pedagogies class this semester, but we haven't gotten to it yet. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it and seeing how, how they respond and how it goes. Um, but yeah, that's something we're actually going, the, the three of us, the three authors are going to record it to do a, an, an oral reading of it um, to see if we can share it with more audiences because I think Again, like thinking about how else we like make knowledge accessible. Um, that's one of the things we do. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm excited about that. It's something that I, I feel really good about. It just came out like a month ago. So we're still figuring out how to like share it in multiple ways. So. 
So I would, I would agree with everything that uh, both Bridget uh, and Grace shared. I love this language of the kind of the, uh, the continuum of liberation and resistance. And so I typically don't use the language of anti-racism. I would usually use racial justice or social justice. And there's some intentionality around that. Uh, I think part of it is, again, humanizing the experiences of BIPOC folks of color. And so we're not just only victimized, but we have such a larger contribution and way of being an agency that we've contributed to society. Uh, and so part of that is also I do, you know, in terms of social justice, you know, one of my critiques about social justice education, if there's a hundred page book, like 98 pages are often focused on the problem. So even if it's the reframing of anti-racism, I like looking at it more again, the goal and the aim is really racial justice or social justice. And so my goal is to like create a supportive learning a community where all to pr preserve self-dignity, uh, that really is centered and anchored on uh, evidence-based approaches uh, and one that creates a pedagogy that I'm mindful of harms and being mindful of not creating harm. So I wanna be mindful of single stories that I might create around my own students, right? And challenge my own assumptions and biases uh, and best get to know them. So kind of one of my charges is to know myself but also have a, a good understanding of our students. How can I best neutralize imposter syndrome, right? Uh, I think one of the misconceptions, particularly because I work with graduate students is once you graduate from college, you figure it out. You know, I'm, I'm first generation and that's carried uh, with me all the way to my professional degree, you know, to my professional identity as a professor, right? So even after undergrad, I became a first generated, generation graduate student, right? And a number of my students uh, really have to negotiate imposter syndrome, right? So how am I able to create a container where they're able to be their full selves uh, and where they don't have to be the spokesperson for their race. Uh, just also being mindful of the, of the cognitive frameworks uh, that I use. So how am I coming sometimes, how am I taking approaches that are more deficit-based deficit models instead of looking really at strength-based models or really equity-minded approaches to the work, right? And so how do I do this in an authentic way that creates life learn, lifelong learning in this process, right? And so a lot of it is also using myself in the work and telling my own stories and being vulnerable uh, to be able to create a space for students of color to be able to do so and white students to have an investment in the work as well. And sometimes if I center myself in a way that shares my stories, uh, it will mitigate or, uh, them feeling that they may force to be telling their own stories or putting them out, out there that they have to re-traumatize themselves uh, at their own expense uh, for the learning of their peers often. Wow, Mike, yes, yes, yes to so much um, of, of what you of what you shared. Um, but particularly, I want to uplift a couple comments that, that you made. Um, number one, the, the fact that you aim to achieve a better understanding of your of your students. I think that's that's really wonderful. And then also using yourself in the work and being vulnerable. Like I think that's one of the best ways to both teach and learn. And that means so much to me because I'm a first generation college student. You know, I'm from Mexico. I was undocumented. I'm DACA. So it's great that, um, you know, you're, you're really sharing that with your students. And as a doctoral student, I'm curious to, to know more about what anti-racist teaching looks like in your classroom. And so if you could share some examples of how each of you enact anti-racist teaching in your classrooms, that'd be wonderful. I'm curious, Grace, could you, could you kick us off with this question? Yeah. Um... I think something that Mike said that really resonated with me and is, is I hope true about my own teaching as well is you know the centering of stories um, and the centering of my own story um, while also simultaneously making sure no one's feeling tokenized, no one's feeling put on the spot, re-traumatized was a word that I think uh, that Mike used that I think can often happen in these spaces where we have um, white students as well as uh, BIPOC students, um, you know, so thinking about two even, sorry, I'm going to go on a little tangent, but I'll get back to it. But like thinking about two even, like being very strategic in the way that I, you know, group students, you know, like if it is a moment where I feel like there is danger of that re-traumatization um, potentially to happen, you know, like if, if I'm, if there's something that's story-based or like, let's, let's reflect on this or let's reflect on this concept that maybe white students might have less familiarity with and, or, have dangerous thoughts around, um, you know, how do I group my students? How do I be as strategic as possible to make sure that that re-traumatization is not part of my classroom? 
So, so that's one thing that I think about a lot, but like, I think in terms of my own teaching, one of the things that I really centralize as a literacy person, again, is um, how do we make spaces for multiple knowledges to be in the classroom? Um, how do we make sure that we're centering the um, many like linguistic, intellectual, artistic, creative, um, poetic um, ways that people have made meaning over time and that have often been pushed out of the classroom, have often been, been said are not academic ways of knowing. Um, so one of my main goals, you know, is to think about um, how does the classroom become kind of like a robust justice-oriented learning space um, that's attuned to like multiple ways of knowing, multiple knowledges, multiple stories, multiple wow. histories, multiple multiple theoretical frameworks. Um, so like, for example, this year um, in my critical pedagogies class, the, the text that we're centering is um, this book, uh, Black Futures, by, which is an edited collection by Kimberly Drew um, and Jenna Wortham, um, who are two critical <laughs> uh, kind of social critics, artists, et cetera. And what they did is created this beautiful multimodal text that is, you know, it has collage, it has text messages, it has paintings, it has um, essays, it has a whole slew of different ways of thinking about what it, what Black futures are. Um, and that book has been so powerful in the classroom, um, both as a model of what multimodal critical resistance looks like, um, cr critical reimagining of the world looks like, futurity looks like, um, in a way that, you know, even one of my students, um, a young woman, she was like, you know, this has been so powerful. She's like, I have never encountered a book like this. And every day after I do my reading from it, I go and share it with my family. And then we go into the text and we start looking up all these different authors and um, creators who are in the book. Um, and so I, I feel like blurring the boundaries purposefully in the classroom, um, where it becomes a space where people's home knowledges, there are, you know, Milagros, before we started, uh, recording even we're talking about the kitchen table like how do we make the classroom a kitchen table I love this idea of the kitchen table it reminds me of something my colleague Danielle DeRosa and I have done in our intergroup dialogue course where we turn one of our class sessions into a kitchen table literally we bring together the tables and the desk we put tablecloths on them and we set up the space to help students feel like they are at a kitchen table our hope in doing this is that we facilitate honest and critical conversations that typically do happen at a kitchen table. And our students have responded really positively to this experience. So I'm curious, Grace, to hear, what's the response that you've gotten from students in your classroom? And does that vary by their own understanding of what you're covering or their own identities or? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think um, it hits different with different students, for sure. Um, I, I, in general, I have positive responses to it. Um, I think <laughs> my set scores say it's good, <laughs> um, but you know, uh, in general, I have really positive. You know, I, I actually um, co-wrote a paper with two of my students from my critical pedagogies last last year. Um, so two young women, women of colors, both with Latina heritages, um, and you know, thinking about the work that we, the multimodal work um, that we did in the classroom and the ways that you know they felt that their like women of color epistemologies were able to come out within the classroom because it was restructured in this way. And, and the, the central centralized knowledges in the class were women of color knowledges. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things, one of the girls, uh, young women's uh, projects that she did was um, actually, you know, it was a kitchen table, you know, she, she did this whole thing, a little video where she's like centering on her family's kitchen table. You know, she's a uh, Mexican American, um, and she talks about, you know, like the table is a place where we learn because it was not only a place where we did homework, but also where we had platicas, where we we shared chismes, you know, like all of this stuff happened at the kitchen table. And those are all forms of learning. Um, and, you know, like she's, she loved, I mean, she had a very positive <laughs> reaction to the I class. Love <laughs> I love this idea that that's an, an, a, a, a source of knowledge that students can actually relate to and think about their own kitchen tables and say, yeah, there's so much learning happening at home in that type of space. Why don't we recreate that in the classroom for students? Mike or Bridget, I'm curious what you're thinking about this. So we, we left, we went to the kitchen table. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, I appreciate the question, Omar. So typically in terms of uh, setting a tone for racial justice, I walk into my class, I put my fist up in the air and then I kneel. 
No, I'm just being facetious. I don't do that. But one of the things I do is I really, I start to develop trust. I think the, the, the major component of this work is creating a democratic process in the classroom. So I do try to mitigate hierarchies as much as possible, and particularly of the process of how we're engaging dialogue and conversations around the class. Uh, while it's true I'm committed to the uh, content and less flexible, I still create platforms and mechanisms where students can uh, now via Zoom chatting on link or create additional resources that I'll look through and also put in a resource list that we can build resources around racial justice. So in every class, and, it, it, and this could be a class that doesn't focus on racial justice at all, uh, I co-construct uh, community agreements, right? So how are we, where it's, I think, impossible to create a safe space, I think it is absolutely aspirational and important to create a supportive space of one another where we can hold each other accountable. And this is not holding someone accountable, but literally how are we able to hold each other accountable in this process? And I also do a student assessment sheet. So speaking of the kitchen table, what's underneath the kitchen table? Like we have uh, students who are in the classroom who are caretakers, may have broken up with someone or dealing with uh, issues related to COVID or uh, affordability issues, right? So if they can disclose those things as well, to me, I think it's a way for me again to meet their needs individually, right? And I think those are important things. And also kind of what are, what are your best ways of learning? Is it more, are you more cerebral? Do you like more exper experiential learning? And so if I'm able to meet their needs, I think there's gonna be more of an opening for them to listen. And I know I had talked about at stakes and you know, I think part of what's really difficult about racial justice, particularly if you're from historically min minoritized groups, a lot of the emotive aspects of what happens in the classroom is frustration, anger, feeling misunderstood, loneliness, or alienated, right? And then if you're coming from historically privileged or advantaged groups, it's often guilt, embarrassment, shame, right? And there's a lot of um, uh, emotional stakes at risk, right? And that's what gets in the way often engaging these conversations. And it also, unfortunately, you know, I think that anger uh, is warranted, right? It's righteous anger. And I think we know empirically that, you know, there's a physiological long-term toll to hold on to that anger. You know, we gotta find ways to channel it. And we also understand, you know, guilt is a very human place to start when you learn about the inequalities in our society, right? And oftentimes students distort their sense of social justice. Um, but we also know if you're overcome with guilt, it immobilizes your ability to act or take action. So those are a number of kind of the things I take in mind. And just to Bridget's point about decolonizing the classroom, uh, oftentimes we'll do land acknowledgement. Uh, sometimes I don't, I don't always do it at the very beginning. Sometimes I'll incorporate it later in the curriculum. Uh, it, you know, I, honestly, sometimes it feels performative to do it every time and I feel like it loses gravity if I do it each time, every time for every class. But I find more creative ways to bring that conversation in uh, more organically into the curriculum. Uh, I try to really be mindful of the, of the black white binary. So I just want to, you know, I don't, you know, there was a powerful uh, article I recently was hit to around uh, Asian Americans feeling gaslighted around this kind of discourse around BIPOC, right? And the struggles then in some ways, the invisibility of the racism or xenophobia uh, that uh, Asian Americans often have to overcome, right? And so where is, Where's room in this conversation for our Latin-A students? How does ethno-religious oppression and how are Muslims often uh, racialized in the US? And so I think these conversations are contextually and context does matter is really contingent on the classroom teaching. So in diversity, uh, this whole like centralizing knowledge of folks of color, particularly women of color, three fourths of the authors are folks of color, right? Um, if I'm teaching someone from someone else's syllabus, you know, I've taught foundations, college student learning and development. Foundations is more historical background. I have to dig a little bit deeper, right, to find those voices and authors. I remember finding James Wilder has a book called Ebony and uh, Ivy, which is kind of just before Georgetown and Princeton. And now there's these consortiums around representations where folks are looking at uh, institutions that their accountability of kind of slave owning how to kind of uh, to create uh, reconciliation and restitution around that. So a little bit harder, right? So, but I'm mindful of how to pull in those resources, college student learning and development, uh, working with colleagues, asking qu questions. Delmi Lindoff, for instance, she had taught the cl class previously. 
how do you counter many of these kind of white this uh, European canon when we talk about student development and learning about authors like now more recent Lori Patton and Elisa Abes, right? And how there's more critical uh, race theory and uh, more um, critical approaches to student development, right? So it takes a lot more work to do so, but I think it's really, there's a lot of payoff to it as well because we're expanding students' uh, repertoire in terms of really contesting these foundational frameworks, particularly as it relates to student affairs and higher education. And if I can't do it through the curriculum, then I'll have intentional guest speakers. I remember teaching a class around leadership in higher education. Um, and because uh, it seems like in so much where it's like um, so fixed and, and so static often, these long-term uh, leadership theories, I just had a lot of folks of color, who are in leadership positions come in and bring their perspective into the classroom. So I think we have to be innovative and creative as well in terms of addressing issues of racial justice. And Mike, I really appreciate what you're sharing about all the multi-layered approaches, right? Like this really takes thinking about your own pedagogy and, and how you show up in the classroom. It, it requires attention to the curriculum you're building and what are you including? Who are you including? What modalities you know, are you including? Um, and then guest speakers, like all the ways in which the environment, the whole context of the classroom really can be informed. I really appreciate that. And you know, I wanted to share something because I also felt this way about, to the point about Brid that Bridget brought up earlier regarding decolonizing the classroom and your point, Mike, about the statements um, about land acknowledgement kind of feeling potentially performative. And I remember the first semester, uh, my colleague that I mentioned earlier, her name is Danielle DeRosa. And um, the first time we brought in um, reading the land acknowledgement, um, every class session, we started to feel like this doesn't feel right. And this doesn't even feel like the way we run our class. So what could we do differently? And how would it mirror more the pedagogy we would have in the class? Mm -hmm. And so we decided to do it collectively with the students. So we would always read the statement every time, but we actually asked students to volunteer for what we started calling it, um, um, activating our learning around indigenous communities. And so all the students volunteer to take a week uh, or a class session and they sign up. And then what they take on is one of the, usually is one of the indigenous um, communities that's named in the land acknowledgement. They volunteer that this week they're going to, let's say, they're going to take on learning a little bit extra about the Mohegan peoples and they bring it to class and they share it. They do like they get 15, 20 minutes to like share and activate our learning around indigenous communities. And then we read the land acknowledgement and then we just keep passing it forward. But it's been awesome. Bridget, I'm turning it to you because you got us inspired in this, you know, uh, trajectory of the conversation around decolonizing the classroom. But I'm curious to Omar's question. What does it look like in your classroom? Yeah, thanks so much. I'm learning already from all of you. So this is wonderful. Um, a couple of things that came to mind as you all were talking. Um, one, I've worked with another colleague to take uh, Miguel Ruiz's four agreements and put them into language for class so to give us the language to start. Um, as Mike talked about doing a kind of a classroom guidelines or contract for how are we even going to speak. And so I think that already decolonizes the space because that's the first thing we do is think about how do we want to interact with each other and to know that your ideas matter, you know, um, that you, you know, come, one of the things in there is, you know, um, speak with integrity. And so one of the things that I, I just don't tolerate and I challenge people on is when they speak ill of themselves or others. So an example might be like, well, I'm really stupid, so I'm not sure about X, Y, and Z. And so we say, well, that's not speaking with integrity. You're not stupid. You're in a graduate program. First of all, so you have a lot of privilege and power and, and knowledge, um, as Grace said, even from your kitchen table. So what, what could you say instead? I'm curious about this. I haven't read as much about this. I'd like to learn more about that. So the four agreements really are something that ground us as we go through the class. And then another thing I always invite students is that their learning is paramount and their knowledge is paramount in the class. So I think that's another way to decolonize instead of me having all of the answers, and I got a lot of this from Bell Hooks and Teaching to Transgress, which was wow. one of the best books I've, I've read in terms of my teaching career. And so thinking about how are you showing up and, and showing us your knowledge and not just coming to hear whatever uh, professor has to say and kind of, you know, the whole banking model. And so 
instead they're really challenged by that because then that that puts their their knowledge their identities their intersectionality um, as part of our curriculum as part of our content and so I show them that um, students really make up the class and I start by um, using Brian Arau and uh, Christy Clemens which were two of my first students when I taught cultural pluralism back at the University of Vermont they've written a piece um, in a book we use around brave space and so we talk about because I heard Mike talk about safe space so we talk about what brave space is and that no one's really safe um, ho hopefully physically in the classroom but not emotionally and that shifts every week um, and so this year I you know, after the summer we had of, you know, more blood and terror for mostly black and brown people, I shifted my multiculturalism class to not have kind of an ism a week, but to center race every week. And so instead of um, race being one of the weeks, it was race first. And we talked about why we centered race. And, you know, I didn't get any resistance from that, thankfully, for my <laughs> students. And then every week was around racialized genderism or racialized heterosexism or racialized ableism. And so that was really challenging for them to think about that intersectional piece and, and how to center race within um, another identity. And so those are just some of the ways that I try to kind of decolonize. And I love, the last thing I'll say is I love Mike's point about um, anti-racism. I kind of started when I was a student using that term and I've shifted based on just some readings I've read about um, if you really want to move something, you need to be going towards something and being positive as opposed to pushing against something. So whenever you're anti something, you're pushing against something and that gives it more power as opposed to, I love your words, Mike, about racial justice um, or what do we want to be pro? <laughs> what are we advocating for? And so I try to talk, talk about being equity minded and what kind of vision do we want to have um, in terms of race as opposed to just feeling like there's this system that we're constantly pushing against. I really love that because that's something that this fall, um, I incorporated even more in my class and it was to me the best teaching experience because it felt more holistic and humanistic where we talked about issues and structures. Um, but then we also had weeks where we were focusing on liberation, joy, resiliency, like just it has to be a complete story. It can't just be, um, you know, what we're pushing against, but what are we working toward? You know, toward what ends, you know, is this work for? So I love that. And I, I hear the energy, Grace, it sounds like you would have yeah. that conversation. <laughs> no, that's, that's, you know, it's just something that I think a lot of, I've been thinking so much about lately, um, you know, using this Black Futures books, book has been a big part of that. Um, but I think the choice to use that book was also grounded in some of this thinking that I've been doing really around, you know, um, this idea of grounded optimism and what that means for me and, you know, some of the folks that I wrote with to like, think about this. Um, and, you know, one of the things, like, I, I think these were Dr. Coles's words specifically um, in within the article, but, you know, defining grounded optimism as this idea that we tenaciously fight to materialize powerful visions of freedom, relishing in the delights of true justice we construct while remaining keenly aware of the logics and structures of injustice that seek to stifle such liberatory praxis. And I think that it's like that, you know, what Milagros was saying about like understanding and being real about the structures that exist, but also, you know, and maybe more importantly, grounding ourselves in, in the joyful, liberatory practices that we've always done so it's one of the things is interesting because when we um thinking about an acronym for the podcast because it's just easier for people to remember i love that when it came together it spelled heart and so the logo for the podcast became heart because i realized it is about anti-racist teaching but it's toward love it's for love about love with love and for love so it takes heart to, to pull this work off and that's that's at the center of the work. I'm really connecting with this idea of love and heart being at the center of teaching, which is interesting because this semester we're focusing on intersectionality as a lens for thinking of anti-racist teaching. And I'm curious, can each of you speak to how intersectionality informs your teaching and what do you think is the impact of this teaching approach for professional preparation of future educators and educational practitioners um, Mike, can you kick us off with this question? 
I mean, I think the sisters, the founding sisters, founding mothers of the Black Lives Matter movement did an exceptional job. And it's just not necessarily a racial justice movement. And it is an intersectional movement because Black folk just aren't just Black. You know, I, I have a gender identity. I have a sexuality. I have a class. I have a, a faith and spirituality. Right. And so working it at, with Smith College School of Social Work, they have an anti-racist mission. Right. And I thought like in theory is great. But in practice, if, you know, if, as a student affairs practitioner and higher educator, if we're talking about meeting our students where they are holistically, I cannot just see them in a vacuum based on a particular identity. So, you know, there's a lot at stake in terms of having you know, as, as Barbara Love, one of my sheroes and woman tours uh, from the social justice ed program, developing a liberatory consciousness. So what's, you know, I, my students as uh, practitioners need to have an awareness of what the issues are, but you can't have an intersectional analysis if you only know how white supremacy and racism operates. You have to understand patriarchy. You have to understand meritocracy. You have to understand heteronormativity, right? So you have to have an awareness that the issues exist then you have to have a deepening of your analysis. So you have to name and notice these things, interrupt, have the confidence and skills to intervene. Um, and then it's just kind of like uh, intellectual stimulation or kind of just narcissism if none of what we learn does not translate into action, pragmatic action, right? How can we transform systems of education how can we support students' dignity? How can we create more uh, equitable systems uh, within education? And this is the thing about teaching to transgress, as Bell Hooks says, you know, it's the practice of freedom. And that's why I buy into higher education. You know, I found my full self uh, within the walls of a, the parameters of a college campus, right? So liberation is absolutely available. One of the few institutions in the US, I think liberation is available even though it still reinforces social reproduction, it reinforces inequalities. And then finally, kind of the importance of like this alliance uh, building or allyship, right? So how are we advocating for causes, students who are most vulnerable, students don't, that don't just like look like ourselves, students that might even have different political ideologies or religious ideologies than we do, right? How are we honest with ourselves and keep integrity around that, you know, in terms of, the work as a student affairs practitioner and higher ed educator is developmental, right? And so how do we really uh, support students in becoming their full selves and reaching their full potential? Uh, I work at Steinhardt, uh, and so the moniker is School of Culture, Education, and Human Development. And those are three things I can really buy into, right? And I wanna embody those things. And so I think it really is our responsibility as educators to carry forward uh, not only racial justice, but incorporating intersexual uh, analytical lens when we do so. Thank you, Mike. We definitely have to have to connect and share because it sounds like we've been <laughs> reading the same people and, and coming to some of the same conclusions about the ways that we wanna teach. Um, just in response to your question, Omar, last night, we had a session with our admitted students at the University of Maryland and our and our program and this one student just really captivated um, me and I hope the students that are hopefully going to come come to us um, but she shared that you know the teaching that we do which is largely um, pro um, justice and equity uh, particularly around race but also around all the other intersections that Mike was just talking about was that the faculty have invited and we have all women faculty of color and um, student affairs at the University of Maryland that we've invited um, her into a conversation with faculty about how to solve um, current and future inequities. So she said, you know, equity-minded faculty in our program instilled in her that she can't keep what she learned, um, what she already knew before she came and what she's been learning. She needs to blog about it, post, you know, I'm so impressed with you all doing this podcast, even though, you know, neither of you said Omar have uh, necessarily expertise in this area, but you do it anyway, because it needs to get out there. You publish, you present ideas um, because it, there really is the onus to change um, our and transform our current very inequitable system. So I, my hope is that through the kind of teaching we do that we see more anti-racist educators, more um, socially justice practitioners working in and around higher education, whether or not they stay in our field or not, they're usually working 
um, and educating people even outside of campuses. Um, we see people recruiting from a decolonized lens um, and reimagining <laughs> who, who can be student affairs practitioners, who can be faculty, who can be presidents, who can be board of trustee members, um, implementing kind of pro-Black, Indigenous, people of color policies and programs, spreading, as Milagros was talking about, Black joy um, into the curriculum, advocating for Latinx and Asian American students, staff, and faculty. Um, some of my colleagues at the University of Maryland have been doing this amazing research. Unfortunately, needs to be done on the backlash that a lot of our Asian American students are experiencing both in K through 12 and in higher ed because somehow um, they're responsible for their global pandemic we're having or we're having responsible for um, this virus. And so having to then demystify and put facts to that about you know, how we actually got to where we are. And then of course, we're all seeing the um, firsthand, the, the impacts of our inequitable system as it shows up every day with people not getting the water that they need, not having sustainable electricity, um, not having you know just basic needs because we're so intent on kind of um, centering um, not just whiteness, but as I'm reading Isabel Wilkerson's book um, on the caste system, just centering that system of hierarchy and dominance and power. And so I'm hoping that the things that we're doing, all of us, um, on this call and in your podcast are helping to transform some of that because it's going to take us all. Yeah, thank you, both of you, uh, all of you. Um, I think just thinking about the impact of this work on students, um, I think it's on multiple levels. You know, most of the students who I work with are um, people who will be elementary school teachers. Um, I also work with some high school, middle school teachers, but most of them are going to be elementary school teachers um, in my pro or, in, in the majority of classes I teach. And um, thinking about that idea of like decolonized recruiting, but then also what do we do once we recruit students? Um, you know, and then we have students in this place that's potentially harmful for them um, that hasn't dealt with its own stuff. Um, and so now we have students of color in a potentially harmful environment. So, you know, I think one of the things that I always am really trying to do in my work is make sure that I'm doing everything I can, whether it's in my classroom or you know in, in the school in general, of, of of transforming these spaces and making sure that you know you're not just being recruited, but you're being loved once you get here. You know, and I'm going to show up as my full self for you and be there with you um, and learn from you constantly. Like both Mike and Bridget, you've talked so beautifully about the ways that you learn from your students, and that is always my goal. Um, it's always to. To, to listen and learn and make my own practice better. Um, and it's something I'm continually like reflexively doing, you know, or attempting to do, and I'm far from perfect, but you know, trying really hard um, and that that matters. So I think that's one level is just even creating a space where we're future teachers of color, because we know we need K to 12 teachers of color, like nobody's business, right? It, it's, it's still 80 some percent white female teachers that needs to change. Um, so if, if there's anything I can do to help not just decolonizing recruiting, but decolonizing the space and the classroom so that they stay and are healthy and loved and strong through the program um, and feel that their knowledges and their, their, their teaching styles and their teaching traditions and learning traditions are centered, that's what, what I'm trying to do. Um, hopefully through that process then, they're able to go into these K to 12 classrooms and, and really think about like, how do we then decolonize these spaces that are, you know, are rooted in, you know, white supremacist, masculinist ideologies, you know, um, and, and think about like, what is our role here? How do we keep ourselves safe while also keeping our students safe? Um, and, you know, talking to some of my former students who are now in their first years teaching, you know, I think that they, First of all, they know they can still come to me and ask me questions and, you know, we can process things and we can cry and we can do all that stuff, you know, which, which I think is really important because you need to, to cry with people during your first years of teaching. Um, but also, you know, that they are doing this beautiful, incredible loving work of, and, and I'm, I'm not taking credit for this at all, <laughs> you know, because it's just them. Um, but I think in some ways, maybe they were given permission to 
do the stuff that they knew <laughs> was in them and that they've done with their families and they've done in their communities. Um, and you know, something that we've talked about a lot is like, how are we now going into the K to 12 classroom and then you know, loving our students, centering their stories, making sure identity is like day one, we're starting to talk about identity, you know, day one teaching is political. So what are we doing to show up for our babies in these, these loving and political and joyful and, you know, um, visionary ways. Um, so I, I think, I hope, you know, I'm, I'm far from perfect, as I said, but you know, those are the things that I strive, strive to do is, yeah, just love on my students and make sure that they then carry that tradition of love to their students. I'd like to build on the wonderful words that Grace shared about her loving her students and ensuring that they are supported during their time in college and beyond. As a first generation doctoral student, I owe so much to the incredible educators and mentors that have supported me throughout my educational journey. I've been fortunate to be surrounded by change makers who not only love their students, but also set a positive example to others. It's thanks to them that I pushed myself to new heights and learned that change is possible. To all the mentors and educators listening, know that your valuable work does not go unnoticed. Countless students appreciate your efforts and know that you're helping train the teachers, mentors, and change agents of tomorrow. Thank you, Grace. I mean, I appreciate what I'm hearing across the three of you um, is that the space you're creating within the higher education context where you're developing educational practitioners that are gonna go either to other higher education contexts or to other educational spaces like K through 12 classrooms that while they are in higher ed, we have an opportunity to not just talk to them about what liberatory education can be, but to model it, to show it. And Mike, I've, it's so sad that we don't have the recording itself posted and just the audio, but earlier you, you said holding them and, and you visually lifted your hands like a hug to like an embrace. So you weren't saying like hold someone accountable, like pointing the finger, but holding like embracing people for accountability. And to me, that's like just love and nurturing, you know? Um, it's very connected to your acronym. I think the one thing you talked about, the heart. And I think this is the hard work because it's the heart work. Mm -hmm. And so when Grace talks about love and so love and compassion, those are like taboo words in academia. And, and those are words that really need to be front and center and foreground the work that we do. Yeah, everybody's nodding their head right now. <laughs> like, yes, yes, yes. Love is the work. Um, thank you. So we're wrapping up and, and I feel like we could have this kitchen conversation for quite a while. I've learned so much from all of you already. Um, I feel like I have things to read. Thanks to some of the things you're mentioning and some I, I new ideas for approaching this work in the classroom. And I hope that it's been generative among among you all as well and i guess as we close out i just wonder if you have any other like last word of advice that you would give to someone who is going to be trying this maybe for the first time who's really committed to wanting to do this they're teaching differently or maybe someone who's been um in the trenches for a while and feels exhausted like any thoughts or words of wisdom or love you want to share express as we wrap up the conversation yeah, thank you both, um, all three of you for mentioning um, love, because <laughs> I it was it was really difficult to teach in the fall, especially teach um, these issues of power and oppression and social justice and um, in a space that was online. Because I am a hugger, I am a person that um, is a face to face, you know, communicator, and so I hadn't even met some of my students, you know, physically um, ever. Some of them still haven't come to to Maryland yet. Um, and so it was so hard to be doing that soul work, <laughs> that heart work apart from them, but um, hopefully, you know, um, they felt the love even over the, the internet. I think the one thing I would just say is this birdcage metaphor has been something I'm a very visual person that's been helpful for me to do this work and teaching. And so I always start with myself. And I think Bell Hooks also gave me permission to, again, not be that expert and the soul, you know, the sage on the stage. And so to start with myself and think about what my birdcage of identities are. Um, and much like the structure of a birdcage, wires are you know, interconnected and I'm holding my hands up and um, crossing them because 
it's not until you step back from the cage and see how every wire is, is really working with three or more wires to hold the bird in the cage that you see why the bird, you know, can't come out and is locked. And our social identities are really constructed in a similar way as we must um, take them not as singular, you know, race, gender, class, um, sexuality, socioeconomic status, but rather how do I bridge it as a black, cisgender, heterosexual woman from a middle-class background and act um, teaching that is justice and equity-based. I first must do so for my own intersection of my salient identities. And so black women, um, as black woman is how I normally identify myself because those are my only marginalized identities. And it's easy for me to teach um, and rant and provide examples of racialized gendered oppression. What's harder for me is to look at my black wealth, for instance. Um, and so that's something I need to examine and talk about and be vulnerable about in my class because vulnerability, vulnerability, I always tell my students, begets vulnerability. And so the more I'm in touch with how my identities intersect when it comes to how I experience racism and internalized notions of black wealth and whether I'm deserving of it, whether I should be guilty about it as Mike talked about earlier and then to where I am now, how can I use my power to enact change? So if I can be in touch with the range of feelings and experiences that I can help students then be in touch with how their intersecting identities impact um, their complicity with racism, white supremacy, and all the um, all the other isms. So my my advice is just to start with yourself. Yeah, I love that. Um, I think one of the people who's helps me most um, think about what it means to do justice oriented work is Dr. Yolanda Seely Ruiz, um, and something that she has really helped me think about. You know, she says this this concept of the archaeology of the self. You know, um, how do you unearth all of the things within you um, kind of similarly, you know, it's, it's all of this work starts with self-work, with heart work, um, with looking inside um, and figuring out like, what are, are there blockages? What are the blockages that's keeping me from loving my students um, to the best that they deserve, you know? Um, and so how am I digging in how am I looking at all my experiences, all my identities, the ways that they interact, the way the world interacts with them um, and helping that frame everything I do in the classroom and, and, and allow my students too to push me to keep digging deeper. Um, and, and that archeology span of the self is not a one-time thing. You know, it's, it's ongoing, beautiful, important work. Um, and I think, again, model, not just saying it to the students and making them do it, but modeling it myself um, and making myself vulnerable and um, open to that learning constantly and learning with them constantly is something that I think has helped me both be better and also help sustain me because, you know, that's love work, you know, and that's, I need to be loved too as the instructor um, or the person in the class. So, you know, anything yes. I can do to. Yes. <laughs> it's multi directional, right? Love is multi directional, or at least we need it to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just appreciate in the synergy uh, between the five of us. Um, Bridget, you talked about the Marilyn Fry uh, birdcage. And literally just two days ago, I used that metaphor to frame. Uh, the TTSJ kind of manifestations of web of oppression. Uh, so it's interesting, like how I love it. Folks are great minds thinking alike. Um, and so for me, like, I think words of advice are, um, you, know, you just never arrive. You know, I have an expertise in this area, but I'm certainly not an expert. Uh, I appreciate this notion of wokeness, right? But even the, the wokest among us still falls asleep at least one time a day. Right, so Grace, you talked about really being a lifelong learner, and I think it's important to be a lifelong practitioner, right? A reflective practitioner. And so just when you think you arrive or you figure it out, I think this becomes very humbling process, particularly in higher education and student affairs because the issues change, students change, the needs of students change, right? And so we, you know, I think it's important to always anticipate that and put your, yourself in positions to be able to grow. And also just really, you know, operating out of, you know, I operate out of social justice. I really try my best not to operate out of social judgment, right? 
And so being mindful of where folks are at and just how I experience or might be able to cope with racism might be very different from some folks who are just experiencing it or have been reactivated as a result of it as well. Uh, and I think finally, I just, you know, this work can't be done alone. You, you have to have a crew, you just do. And I think that's what makes it really sustainable for me is I have folks I can call, email, get on the Zoom with, see in person, have a sip of wine with, and just process these, I'm a processaholic. Process, you know, what can I do better? How can we do better? What needs to happen? How can we support each other, right? Uh, so thinking in tandem and collectively as we do the work. And, you know, and, and, and just be comfortable with, like I always say, there's no Hollywood ending here. This is an indie film, it's, you know, so it's a lifelong process of not feeling resolved. Uh, we continue to work ourselves out of a job in terms of racial justice, but unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Well, Grace, Mike, Bridget, let me just share how much I sincerely appreciate your perspectives and your practices because your your passion and commitment to train the next generation of leaders is is truly palpable. I'm so appreciative of all the love that was shared in today's session. And um, just speaking as a doctoral student, um, a first generation student, I'm so I guess just thankful and hopeful for the students that sit in all of your classrooms, despite being in a virtual setting, because that's exactly what students need. Um, and it's what people need. And it's what, you know, it's what we all need. And Grace, I think you said it well, you know, it's like love should be shared, but it should also be received. It's a collective effort. And that's what I've come to learn since I've, I've uh, joined uh, the awesome team at UConn. And since I've joined Milagros, I'm so thankful. So thankful for all of you, really. Um, and I just want to wish you all the best of luck on current projects, on future projects, and uh, let's let's keep on fighting. The work continues. Uh, so yeah, just thank you again for offering your time and your wisdom to all of us today. That's right, Omar. What a beautiful expression of love in this table talk conversation about liberatory praxis. Thank you, Dr. Player, Dr. Turner Kelly, and Dr. Funk. We appreciate you so much, the love that you bring to your teaching and the wisdom you are willing to share with our listeners. Thank you for being a part of the Heart Podcast. To find the resources noted during our conversation, please visit cetl.uconn.edu and click on the banner for the Heart Podcast. We hope you'll join us for our next episode, which will air on April 7th. In that episode, we're going to be talking about anti-racist teaching at community colleges. Our guests for that episode include Dr. Kenny Nienhauser, from the University of Connecticut, Dr. Liz Cantu, and Dr. Lewis Brownlee from Estraymont Community College in Avondale, Arizona. We thank them in advance for the rich conversation and learning that they will share with us. We also want to thank the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning and the Office for Diversity and Inclusion at the University of Connecticut for their support to make this podcast possible because it takes a village and it takes hearts.